listening to The Fret Files, the Guitar Workshop Podcast with Eric Daw. To participate in the show, visit my website, ericdaw.com. That's E-R-I-C-D-A-W.com. Click the contact link and send in your question or comment there. I'll use it as part of the show. The other way to do it is to call 757-774-8482. You can call or text that number, 757-774-8482. Yes, indeed. Welcome to the show. This is the Fret Files Podcast. My name is Eric Daw. I'm your friendly host and guitar scientist. Over 20 years of experience building and repairing guitars, this is a podcast about guitars. Guitar repair, guitar building, guitar news, guitar science, guitar opinions. Just about the only thing we don't cover is how to play the darn things. And uh, I tell you what, it, it's October 2017, we've got one more week before the big show, the big guitar horror story show. So if you have a guitar horror story, please submit it. I need more stories for the show. Um, Please submit it to uh, my website, ericdaw.com, or call 775... Oh, geez. Are you kidding me? I can't remember my own number. 757-774- 8482. You can call or text. Submit your guitar horror story, the most mangled guitar you've ever seen, the guitar that got away. Maybe your your mom sold it while you were off to college. Maybe you had a haunted guitar. Maybe you had a guitar that got burned up in a fire. Whatever. The craziest repair you've ever had to do, or the craziest repair you've ever had to undo. Those are always fun. Send me a guitar horror story. We'll use it as part of the show next week. That's the big October Halloween special edition of the Fret Files. I've got a great interview with uh, Mark Arnquist, Seattle-based luthier, (laughs) and he shares my disdain for the word luthier. And uh, we're going to talk about his backstory. We're going to talk about Rickenbackers a little bit. We're going to talk about all kinds of things. This is probably part one of of uh, our interview with Mark because uh, there were I had so many questions that I wanted to ask Mark but he just he just you ask him one question and he goes and goes and goes and I it was so good that I didn't want to interrupt so uh we'll probably get to uh, another interview with him another day but this will probably be part 1 which is really part 2 in a series of former Rickenbacker employees that's right Mark worked uh as a uh, as an employee of Rickenbacker in the 70s, uh, as did Dale Fortune, who we interviewed a few weeks ago. So I hope you enjoy this interview as much as I enjoyed doing it, because Mark is a, a great guy and has a, a lot of great stories and a lot of great insights. He worked, you know, he was in Southern California in the 70s and in the 60s. He was working with bands like Jefferson Airplane, and, uh, well, you'll you'll hear him. You'll hear him tell the stories. It's pretty cool. Anyway, without further ado, here's my interview with Mark Arnquist. Hi, Mark. How you doing? I'm doing just fine. Great. 
what would you like to talk about? How did you get into the whole guitar repair thing? Um, I was uh, 15, and I saved up money to buy a Fender Telecaster. And I bought a 1967, 66 rather, a, a Telecaster for 150 bucks. Wow. And I, and I saved my nickels and dimes from flipping hamburgers, and I, it took me a long time to pay the thing off. Uh, gas was 30 cents a gallon. Cokes were a dime out of a machine. <laughs> was, so, so was that guitar an idea? Was that guitar new so, at the time, or uh, was that a used one? Is that, it was a used one, yeah. Yeah. And, and the thing with this was, uh, a friend of mine sold it to me. He goes, I, you know, it's a really cool guitar, but it just isn't me. And I said, and I didn't understand what that meant at the time. Yeah. And I said, well, what kind of what kind of music can you play on this? And he goes, well, that's just the thing with a Telecaster; it's everything. For some <laughs> reason, it, you can do just about anything on it, and it works. Yeah. And at the time, I thought, oh, well, okay, this is great. I've been looking <laughs> at other things, and you know, Gibsons were crazy expensive; they were at least three hundred and fifty, and you just never knew what you're going to get. So. Uh, who could afford that? I yeah. could go buy a car for that. Sure, right. Yeah, at the so, time, yeah. So um, I buy this buy this guitar, and the neck pickup went dead on it. Hmm. And I had done some soldering and art classes and, and electronics classes in junior high, and here I am a sophomore in high school, and I got this thing. And I, I took it to school one day to talk to the electronics teacher, and he looked at it. And he said, well, I don't see anything wrong with it. He goes, but I don't work on these things. Yeah. Okay, okay. So um, I took it to a guy that somebody at school said was a guitar repair shop. And um, I took it into him. And he called me a few weeks later and said, your guitar is done. And I said, okay. Or excuse me, let me preface this with, he called me up and said, I'm looking at your guitar and the pickup's dead. And... I don't have one of these. I can't get one of these, but I do have a Stratocaster pickup. Uh -oh. and if you put a Strat pickup in the neck position, uh -oh. you'll have a Strat and a Telecaster. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, well, okay. All the other guys I went to school with either had Jazz Masters or Strats, mostly Strats. Yeah. So I said, and all of them went, man, neck pickup and the Strat is the thing. Okay. So I got it. Um, he, I said, go ahead and put it in. I didn't know what it would take. Well, yeah. <laughs> I got the guitar back. I was shocked at what it looked like. The guy had whittled away the guard. It looked like he used a steak knife. <laughs> and I took the guard off, and he drilled two holes to put the screws in it. And I was appalled. Yeah. Uh, I took the guard off, and he had chiseled the hole bigger so he could get the pickup in. Sure. And and I was appalled. And it was just shocking to me. This guy would just take and I mean, I could have done this kind of work myself. Yeah. Did he at least? But like, I was taking you, it. I was taking it to a guy with a sign on his door, guitar yeah, right. repair. <laughs> yeah. And I was paying for what I thought was his expertise. Did the did the route so look like his, he uh, did the route look like he did it with a butter knife, or did he at least use a router? No, he, no, no. He didn't use a router. He used a chisel. Oh yeah, geez. Uh, he just sat there and took a big old mallet and whacked the end of the chisel and chiseled all these pieces of wood out. It was, it was chiseled. Wow. I know it's like go out and split wood with an axe. That's what it looked like. <laughs> yeah. 
So um, I was a, I was shocked, and and I I got this thing, and and I had it for a few weeks after that, and then it the the stride pickup stopped working. <laughs> And now I, I've, I've spent 150 bucks saving that, and then I spent I don't know maybe like 75 dollars or something to have it fixed, and now it's not working. Yeah. From a from a professional. Right. And I'm a kid, who, who you know what what do you do? And my dad is, you know, this is also a time frame with what I was listening to, and music might as well have been, you know, nuclear waste. <laughs> he saw it as this is yeah. this is part of the problem of why America is going to hell in a handbasket. <laughs> My father was kind of an Archie Bunker kind of guy, yeah, and I was meathead, yeah, and uh, and that's the way life was. So here, you know, you're listening to that. You know, you usually listen to some good music like Montavani. <laughs> oh my God! You don't, if you don't know what Montavani is? Oh, I know. Yeah, Google Montavani. Yeah, I mean, I mean, my dad listened to more syrup than they make in Vermont. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so he wasn't into Telecasters, I guess, huh? Oh my God! You know, I mean, the <laughs> fact that Buddy Merrill may have had one on Lawrence Welk was <laughs> irrelevant. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it didn't matter at all. It didn't matter that the theme to Bonanza might have been played with one. Yeah, it didn't sure. matter. No, you know, nothing like it was a guitar, and guitar yeah. was evil so so it was part of the problem yeah, of the youth right. of america yeah so and until the day he died in 92 he felt that way yeah so um anyway so now i'm at school and i'm talking to a guy named bill austin who i just reconnected with about three years ago uh he plays with terry haggerty from uh, the old sons of chaplin band and Anyway, I, I'm talking to Bill, and Bill's got this gold top Les Paul, and I go, you know, uh, you, you know about guitars, and, and I don't know what to do. What would you do? I think I'm going to get rid of this guitar and get another one. And he went, you stupid jerk, why don't you just go to Fender? <laughs> and I went, what? It's Fender. They're in Fullerton. They're you know, 10 miles away. Okay. So I, I looked it up in the phone book, got the address. And a buddy of mine and I, we got in his, his dad's car on a Saturday, and we drove over to Fender. Wow. Fender is not open on Saturdays. <laughs> okay, so I, I go over to Fender, and we pull up, and the door is open, and there's a car there. And, you know, here's the hours of the, of the, of the, the shop um, on the outside. On one side of the railroad tracks on Raymond Avenue, where it was Fender, and on the other side was all the the factory buildings. Oh wow! And what? the the and the the repair sh- the the parts department, the offices, whatever, was where it had the big Fender logo and the and the you know how many days a week yeah. painted on the cinder blocks. What what year would this and have been? This is like nineteen seventy seventy one something like that. Wow, cool. And I go in and uh, with my case and my guitar. And I, I uh, said, uh, hello, uh, is anybody here, you know, did that. And he says, come on in. What can I do for you? And I said, well, I, I got this guitar, and I don't know what you can do for me. And he says, uh, well, tell me what, what's going on here. So I open up the case, 
and here's the repair tickets, and he's looking at the repair tickets for fixing this thing, and he's looking at how crappy it was done, and he's looking at me and my friend, and he goes, uh, have you got a few minutes? And yeah, sure. So he goes through a doorway. He's gone for maybe five minutes. Yeah. And he comes back out, and he's got a a, a, a white laminated pick guard and a black laminated pick guard, a Telecaster neck pickup, and he's got uh, two diagrams. One is a a schematic, a, a real schematic, and he's got um, another piece of paper that's got a pictorial drawing of how to solder the controls of a Telecaster. Wow. And this is what was this is out of what they used to hand out to all the repair stations, all the warranty shops, and all the all the dealers. They used to get all this material. Yeah. And he says, "Okay, all the the lines here are are, are color coded. So you see how it says this one's yellow, this one's red." And I go, "Yeah." And he goes and he unscrews the control plate, flips it upside down, and says, "See how this is a white one, a yellow one, a brown one, a black one?" I went, "Yeah." See the diagram, how it's the same? Yeah. He goes, you, you understand it. Do you know how to solder? I go, yeah, I know how to solder. Okay. Um, and he lays all this stuff out, and, and he gives me a switch and shows me another diagram or draws out another diagram for another way to wire the switch, hmm. which is what you and I would think of as the normal way to yeah, wire a telecaster. Yeah, the modern wiring. Mine was wired so that, when you click the switch to the volume control, that was the bridge pickup. In the middle was the neck pickup. Right. And the, toward the neck was the, the oh, neck pickup sure. with the capacitor yeah, on it to make still, it sound like a bay. Yeah, it still had the pre-67 wiring in it. Yeah. Yes. So I, I, I didn't like that wiring. So he drew the other thing out, did the color coding, and he goes, and I'm looking at all this, like two guards and a, and a pickup and a switch, and I just said, um, well, how much is all this? And he's going, do you like this Stratocaster pickup? And I said, well, I didn't want it in the first place. And he goes, okay. And he goes in with snips and he clips everything and then screws the switch and goes, here's the new switch. And I go, are you able, well, how much is this going to cost? And he puts the new switch in and he keeps talking while he's doing all this. He's going, you know, these switches last forever. These switches are great. They're almost bulletproof. And he's going through all this stuff, and he screws the switch in, and I'm looking at all these wires dangling around, and he goes, which guard do you like, the black one or the white one? And I said, well, I really like the black one better than the white one. And he goes, sticks that in the case. He goes, there. Now, it's Saturday. We're not open on Saturdays. Go home. <laughs> nice. And and we look at each other, and it's like, well, what are we supposed to do? Yeah. You know, I still don't know how much it's going to cost, and what am I? Uh, uh, and he goes, have a nice day, boys. Nice. We're like, yeah, yeah. Uh, 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 and he finally just says, get out of here. Because <laughs> <laughs> we didn't know what uh, to do. Yeah, sure. You know, it was, just, it was just a stunning kind of a thing. Yeah. So, yeah, I you know, uh, 10 years, 10, 15 years later, I ran into Charlie at, at the NAMM show, and I said, Charlie, you don't remember me, but uh, you know, I know that you run service at Fender, and you've been there for you know, 30 years, but you did this, and he goes, I don't remember you at all. I really don't. 
Yeah. And I, and I said, it's your fault. <laughs> <laughs> All of this well, is that, your fault. That started to snowball down the hill. Yeah. I went home, I fixed it. And of course, all my friends were amazed at, hey, he fixed his own guitar. So, um, again, I'm now out of school between junior year or uh, after high school. Okay. Mm-hmm. This friend of mine is working at Rickenbacker. And uh, I was working flipping burgers again. And he says, you know, you should get a job working at Rickenbacker. It's really easy. Anybody can get a job there. Nice. And I went, no, no, it's got to be a bunch of old guys with like really thick glasses and like shop aprons on and lab coats. And he's yeah. going, no, it's a bunch of long haired weirdos smoking joints. <laughs> you know, this, this is about how fast can you drink a quarter Miller beer at lunch? <laughs> <laughs> and I went, okay. he goes, go down and, you know, come down with me. And I'll, you can, you can drive me down there to go to work and then uh, drop me off. You go in and fill out an application. And then if they want to hire you, they'll hire you. Yeah. And I'm thinking, There's no way. So I go in and make a long story short, I was there four and a half years. Yeah. I ran the I ran the night shop. I was the quality control guy. I have no idea what my boss saw in me, but nobody but nobody did anything but two jobs. He taught me every station in the whole shop. Cool. Except for winding coils. Mm-hmm. And Carmen had been there since like 1960 or so. And there's, she was the only one that long coils. Hmm. So I understood the process, but I just never actually sat there with the winder and did it. Yeah. It was as low tech as you can possibly get, almost to the point of a sewing machine motor and a hand drill. Yeah, well. It, it wasn't anything special. There was no counter. There was no, uh, I mean, she fed the wire on with her finger and moved it back and forth and, and wound coils. That was it. That's amazing because those old Rick pickups are, are surprisingly consistent. Well, you know, the thing is, is that they said you have to make them so that they're between 5K and 9K. Hmm. And she did have a meter. Yeah. So when she got done winding them, she would check them on the meter. Yeah. And if they were getting too close to 5K, you know, my boss, Bill, would go in and go, Carmen, can you wind a little bit more because they're a little on the thin side. Okay, so she just put more wraps on, and it was yeah. all a visual thing. So she had a bobbin that had been wound that was too that didn't have enough, and then she knew that if she filled the thing up completely, it was too much. Yeah. So it was a, strictly a visual thing. Wow, you know, that's like, that's cool. Like measuring in a in a pitcher, and you're and you're mixing up pancake batter. Yeah, sure. You know, you just you just kind of do it. Okay. Yeah. So. Uh, that was basically, the, you know, anyway, so she did that. I did all the, I worked everywhere else because I was left-handed. They gave me the job of working on the left-handed guitars in checkout. Oh, wow. And they assumed that I was going to play left-handed. Yeah. Oh, and you don't. You I play don't. right-handed. Oh, yeah. No. I'm, I'm right-handed. So is Glenn Campbell. So is uh, Steve Morris, who's now in Deep Purple. Mm-hmm. Uh, was in the Dixie Dregs. Uh, John McLaughlin, the uh, jazz guitar player. Uh, I think Barney Kessel and Herb Ellis were left-handed. Hmm. So, um, anyway, so I, I did all this stuff, and I got to a point with uh, my girlfriend at the time. We were on again, off again, and I was fed up with it. I needed to change a, a venue, as it were, a new girlfriend, get her out of my life. And so <laughs> I moved to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. 
I mean, you know, just that, that's a nice four and a half hour drive yeah. just to get a new venue. So I did that and, uh, nothing was happening. I went into a, uh, a laundromat to do laundry and got a San Francisco Chronicle and there was an ad for, uh, guitar repairman needed. Hmm. So I answered the ad and the guy who I talked to was, uh, Steve Bowman, the drum sales guy, uh, at Donovan's music city in San Francisco. And he said, uh, well, the guy you need to talk to isn't here. I said, okay, well, when is he going to be here? He goes, I don't know. <laughs> well, what kind of a deal is this? He goes, we're the biggest music store west of the Mississippi. And I went, okay, well, what does that mean? He goes, come in and take a look. So I did. The place made Guitar Center look like a pawn shop. Wow. Um, I mean, it was huge. It wow. just went on and on and on. It had every color of Fender with either a maple or a rosewood fingerboard and like the top six, seven models. Everything was there. Wow. Gibson, the same way. It was just, it, it just was never ending, amazing. It just looked incredible. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I said, well, when are they going to be here? He goes, they're at a trade show, and they won't be back for a while. So, and and knowing them, they'll probably uh, play, in, play in Southern California. So, I just, you know, you just have to check back. So, a week later, I checked, I checked, I checked. Anyway, I, I pestered him, and I went in, and I got a job. The Rickenbacker connection sealed the job. Yeah, I bet. And And they immediately called Paul Kander and said that there's a guy here that used to work at Rickenbacker, and I bet he can fix your guitars. Kander hmm. was having fits about the fact that he couldn't get his Rick Tall strings to stay in tune. He couldn't get them to function the way he wanted them to. <laughs> Nobody could. And no. So um, this, this hairy guy comes in with this enormous mustache. Yeah. And, and kind of like, you know, open up a book of pictures from like you know, the 1890s, and there's a guy with lumberjack, <laughs> and he's got this gigantic mustache. Yeah, how everybody That's in Port, how everybody like. in Portland looks today. Yeah, yeah. And uh, so um, he says, "I got this guitar, and uh, it needs to be uh, adjusted, and uh, you can do uh, basically, you know, what, what would you do?" You know, uh, how much is, you know, not how much is it going to cost, but what would you do? And I said, well, to be honest with you, what I need to do is take everything off of it and then put it back together right. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, that doesn't make any sense. And I said, no, it does. It's, they do good woodworking and finishing, but when they assemble these things, they're kind of clueless. Yeah. And the bridge is in the wrong place and the tailpiece is probably cockeyed. The tuners are hitting each other. The truss rods aren't working uh, properly. Uh, and I just went through the whole list. Yeah. And uh, and he goes, uh, are you sure it needs that? And I said, does it work for you now? And he goes, well, no. And I said, in that case, come back and, and you can you can tell me when you pick it up what you think. Yeah. So I didn't have much going on because I was working on store stock. And so I took this guitar apart, spent a few hours on it, put it all back together, did all my little tricks. And I called him up and I said, the thing's ready. So about a week goes by after he picks it up and I get a phone call from the same guy. And he says, I have a, a bunch of guitars 
would you take a look at those? And I said, sure. <laughs> so the, the guitar shop was in the back of the warehouse next door to the music store. Yeah. And we had two, there was two doors that opened onto the street. And, uh, I hear this truck pull up and this trunk comes rolling out of a truck. This is on Columbus in San Francisco down by Fisherman's Wharf. And there's the cable cars going by constantly. There's tons of traffic. There's no parking. It's cramped. I mean, it's all these tourists. And this guy parks back backwards, wrong side of the street, unloads a trunk, and wheels in this giant road trunk with 32 guitars in it. Wow. And on the side of it, it says Jefferson Airplane. Uh-huh. And he goes, hi. I'm looking at it, and I just go, okay, well, that just says Jefferson Airplane. So what? They broke up. Yeah. <laughs> this is you know, late 70s. Yeah. So he's got the roll of road from my big deal. And right behind him, in walks Paul Kantner. And uh, he said, are you the guy that worked on that 12-string? And I said, yes. And I'm thinking, is he mad? <laughs> is he, you know, where are we going with this? I'm, I'm like a little bit nervous now. Yeah. And he said, you took my worst guitar and made it my best 12-string. Nice. I said, I did? He goes, it's incredible. So he says, let's get some of these guitars out. And he opens the trunk. They open the trunk up. And here's all of Paul's road guitars. It's full, the trunk. Wow. And and we start going through the guitars. And I'm talking to him. And, I'm, you know, I start nervous. Like, what's going to happen here? This is pretty weird. I've never sat down with anybody of notoriety really and gone through a road. I've definitely not gone through a road trunk. And he, uh, he just goes through all these guitars and goes, what would you do to this? And so I, I said, well, you know, okay, you've got this and this tuning. You have to tell me the tuning because if it's going to be set up all the time for the tuning, there's a, a counter tension that has to be dealt with. Mm-hmm. So the string gauge is, is critical. The bridge placement's critical. All these things are critical. It's all a balance act. Right. He's going, okay, I get it, I get it. Okay, so what would you do? And I go, I do this, this, you know, I go through the whole thing. And he's going, okay. So he said, says, I do that one. Okay, next one, next one. So there's like, there's literally, I think it was 32 guitars. Wow. There was Strats, there was a Telecaster, there was uh, like six Rick 12 strings at least. There was uh, his Les Paul that had the Brazilian rosewood uh, uh, fretboard with the, abalone inlays in it with the Brazilian rosewood pickup frames. Um, they were like $1,500 back then uh, that Nolan was making. It was a, I think they made like a hundred, 150 of these things. Mm-hmm. And he had one. The serial number was etched into an oval, uh, abalone piece in the back of the headstock. Wow. <laughs> uh, so he said, what would you do to this? And then, so I went through all of that. I said, this, that, you know, all of this stuff. Uh, the Stratocaster, you know, I, I want to play an open C tuning and I can't get the thing in tune. And I said, well, we need to put the bridge in the right place so that you can do that, which means I have to drill six new holes, which means that we move the bridge away from the neck, that we do this, we do this, we do this. He's going, okay. You know, and it was just on and on. And he goes, and I want to be able to get the neck and the bridge pickup together. Okay. Well, this is also before there was even a five-way switch. You could not buy five-way right, switches. Right, yeah. That's amazing. They didn't exist. Okay, mm-hmm. So I said, what I'll do is I'll take the, the controls and I'll wire up the last knob as the middle pickup control. Yeah. 
So it turns it on. You have a master volume and you have two tone, two volume controls. And that became a guitar that he used on about six songs. Hmm. Um, he was in, really into open C tuning for some reason. Yeah. And uh, he, uh, Gibson Sonomatic strings, giant strings. I think it was like, uh, if I remember right, it was like 12 to 56 or 58. I can't, not sure, but it was, it was big hmm. with a one third. And, and there was a, an L5S that he had that was exquisite. God, it was absolutely gorgeous piece of maple. Mm-hmm. Um, anyway, so he went through all these guitars, and then he he left. And I worked on all the guitars. I called up the office, the number that he gave me. They came and got the guitars. And then he came and walked in one day and said, I want to thank you for what you've done to my gear. It's never been like this. Great. And then the flood started. Oh, yeah. He told everybody, everybody, didn't he? Yeah. (laughs) And then the floodgates open. Uh, Hold that thought, Mark. We're going to take a quick break, and we'll get right back to your story. Pick up right where we left off in just a moment. Hey, this is Darren Jones from Jones & Fisher. Hello, this is Scott Marshall Watson calling. Just wanted to let everyone know how much I love my pinup guitar. Eric Dawes, Pinup Custom Guitars. Can't say enough good things about them. PinupCustomGuitars.com. It's the closest thing that I've personally found to being anything like a, a real vintage 50s Telecaster-style guitar. My name is Jay Boone. I am an owner of two pinup guitars. Eric makes guitars that remind me of the, the real vintage-style guitars, and that's what appeals to me. PinupCustomGuitars.com. It makes me personally a better player. A very vintage-sounding instrument, very light and resonant. And I use it all the time. I play with it regularly. Uh, I love the feel of the neck. It's a fat, 50-style neck. This is Joshua Joel here. This guitar makes all other guitars that I've owned personally feel like toys in comparison. I love the guitar. It's my uh, my main rig when I'm out on the road. I, I ended up buying two of them, and I, I use them both on a regular basis. I'll tell you what, if I have the money, I don't ten of them. Thank you, Eric. I appreciate the eagle eye for quality and, and uh, attention to detail. I'm a big fan. Way to go, Eric. Great job, Eric. I really appreciate it. Check one out for yourself. PinUpCustomGuitars.com. That's PinUpCustomGuitars.com. Hey everyone, it's Melissa. As many of you may know, I make tooled leather guitar straps. Each strap is cut, carved, stamped, dyed, and finished by hand. My straps are made to last a lifetime. Visit melcoleather.com to check out my designs or contact me with your custom order. Contact me through my Etsy site or melcoleather at gmail.com. Podcast listeners will receive 15% off their order on Etsy when they use code FRETFILES at checkout. melcoleather.com. M-E-L. C-O-Leather.com. So Bruce, the, the Conti brothers, who were the guitar and bass player in, uh, in Tower of Power, they show up. <laughs> and then Neil, Sean, and Carlos Santana already knew Don Weir, but they got a call from Paul, and they said, this guy's good. So then they came in, and then they told, and it just it snowballed. Wow. And it was suddenly, it was anybody and everybody in the Bay Area except for the Grateful Dead. Mm-hmm. And my only encounter with the dad was I met Phil one day. Um, he was just walking around in wheels, but I never, you know, that was it. And then Jerry Garcia came in one day and Don had bought, I think it was 500 crybaby wah-wah pedals. Wow. And at the time you could buy one of those for about 
45 or 50 bucks. Yeah. And Don had them for sale for $25. Wow. I couldn't buy them for $25. And we got other owner, store owners hearing about this sale of crybaby Wawa pedals. How can you do that? And he said, I bought a container of them. Huh. Uh, you know, I bought, I bought a, a semi truck full of crybaby Wawa pedals. And I'm off the chart. So that's how I got them. <laughs> so, um, and so anyway, Garcia came in one day and he's arguing with me about $25. <laughs> and, and I just said, you know, Gary, I mean, you can't get them anywhere else for anything close to this. Yeah. And, and he's going, yeah, I know, but uh, I, I want, I want the real deal. This is the real deal. <laughs> this is the deal of deals. And we went round and round and round. And then Don finally came out of his office and goes, hey, Jerry, what are you looking for? Well, I want to buy a Wawa pedal. And he goes, 25 bucks. They're yours. So he finally bought one for 25 bucks. But that was my only Garcia encounter. That's funny. But everybody else in the Bay Area, I, I met all these guys. Yeah, that's it cool. It was really weird being 25 meeting the guys who were, you're listening to on the radio. Sure. You know, it was, it was very remarkable. Yeah, so that is that that's cool. Two and a half years, and then uh, Candor said, "Do you want to go on the road?" And he went, "What does that mean?" I don't know. And what does go on the road? <laughs> and he goes, "Well, we're gonna we're doing a tour." And I went, oh, "Okay, good." He goes, "Do you want to go on the road?" You're not telling me what that means. So uh, <laughs> he says, "Well, I hire you, and I fly you to all these cities." And then you get off the airplane and you go to the gig and then you set up the stuff and tune the guitars and then we play and then you put the guitars back in their cases, put them back in the truck and then we all go to the airplane and then we fly away. And I went, well, I don't know. And he goes, and it pays $1,500 a week. <laughs> and I'm thinking, um, I don't make that in a month, you know, like half yeah. a month. Uh, $1,500 a week. Okay. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Count me in. Sure, sure, sure. And, and you want me a white? He goes, set up my amps and my and tune my guitars. Well, what about, if, you know, if I, do I, you want me to fix stuff if it breaks? He goes, well, yeah, yeah. but I don't fix amps. And he goes, that's all right. I got a guy that fixes amps. You just fix the guitars. Um, well, they don't implode on stage. So, you know, okay. So I, I did this. And it wasn't a national tour. It was just like around the Bay Area. We played Portland, uh, we went. Um, we did a gig in Anchorage, Alaska. We played the Bay Area again, and then I was sitting around in uh, Wally Hyder's studio while they recorded uh, the Earth album. Mm -hmm. And uh, there I'm, I'm being paid to sit. So wow. that was interesting. Yeah, I bet. Um, you know, so okay, so I did that. I worked for uh, Huey, Lewis, Huey Lewis in the news when they were uh, an opening act for the opening act. Oh wow. <laughs> Nobody knew who they were. Yeah, there was nobody. Um, and we played a, a, a club called I think it was Uncle Charlie's in Corte Madera. Are they a Bay Area band? And, uh, I don't. I don't even know where they're from. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, they're from San Fran the San Francisco area. Cool. And they were originally called Clover. We really. Got a gig uh, as the backup band for Elvis Costello. Hmm. And Elvis Costello had a record out, but he couldn't bring the band over. Um, uh, because of work permits or whatever. So they hired this band, Clover. And Huey was not the lead singer then. He was just the harmonica player. Really? 
So wow. it was basically, you know, uh, uh, John McPhee, who's now, he's been with the, and the Doobie Brothers for, geez, I don't know, 35 years or whatever, uh, ever since Michael McDowell was in the band. Yeah. Um, uh, John was the guitar player in Clover. And, but the, the drummer and the bass player, uh, uh, Mario uh, Cipollina, um, uh, he, he was in Huey Lewis. Uh, the drummer, Gibson, Bill Gibson, I think, uh, he was in Clover. Yeah. And so it was basically Clover became Huey Lewis from the news. Anyway, so you know, I did stuff for those guys. I did stuff with the Tubes. I did stuff with uh, the new writers of the Purple Sage. I did... God, I mean, it was just kind of anybody and everybody. And so it was like Saturday night, we're playing a gig at the old Waldorf. Can you come down and tune our guitars for us? Yeah, sure. Hmm. What else? So we're going to play the Keystone over in Palo Alto. Okay. We're going to play in Berkeley the week after. You want to do that? Sure. We're going to go play uh, Sacramento. Okay, I can do that. We'll go play UC Davis. So I did that. And I could, I could do all of that and work at Don Weir's. Cool. That well, sounds like a blast. You must have had a lot of fun. Was this buddy of mine, I I did some stuff with Alvin Bishop around the Bay Area. Yeah. And uh, one of the guys that worked at Don Weir's was working for, uh, quit working at the store and went to work for Alvin. And Johnny calls me up and says, hey, we're playing out at the uh, the frog jumping thing out in uh, Cal- Angel, Angel Camp is the name of the town. Uh-huh. And it was one of the old gold mining towns. Wow. And uh, he said, there's having this festival in Elvin's playing there. You want to come see us? And I said, yeah, sure. So uh, I went over and he goes to get in. Just, just tell him that you got a box of Ernie Ball strings. <laughs> okay. So I got to the gate and the guy goes, I need a ticket. And I go, got no ticket. I got the Ernie Ball strings. And he goes, like for who? And I go, Elvin Bishop. It's Elvin Bishop and Johnny Bernaz, the other guitar player. I brought their strings. They're out of strings. I just got a phone call. I drove two hours. I'm tired. I got the strings. I want in. And so they got on the walkie-talkies and called backstage, and Johnny said, yeah, send them in. So now I'm in free. Cool. And uh, uh, I listened to all the bands, and the last band to play was Dave Mason. Oh, yeah. And uh, and uh, they do their set. They get to the last song, and Gerald Johnson, the bass player, um, he was left-handed. Mm-hmm. He played a right-handed bass upside down. And they get done with the song, and just as the song ends, his P bass stops working. No signal. Hmm. Nothing. Like the last bar. It just goes crackle, 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 nothing. And they've got to do an encore. Yeah. So they were going to come out and do all along the watchtower. And because uh, David played the acoustic on the uh, Hendrix tune, and uh, the Hendrix version, rather. And. Uh, so it was like, is there a, the is there a doctor in the house? <laughs> yeah, well, no. All of all the road crew goes over to the amp. They tear down the amp. Go get the the backup bass head, and and they're dealing with that. And I said, no, I need a number one Phillips screwdriver, a soldering iron, and a three eighths uh, uh, nut driver or a crescent wrench. I need it now. And they're going, no, no, the amp's dead. We got to change the amp out. I go, give me the bass. Give me these things. So Gabrielli. Um, with Elvin Bishop goes and gets me the tools that I need. Dave Mason's standing there watching all of this going on. <laughs> and I lift the guard up and here's the wire dangling loose. Yeah. I soldered the thing back on. I pull, go, now that they've got the head back on, 
I go and I plug the thing in and it works. I put all the screws back in and Mason says, he's hired, you're fired. <laughs> nice. Oh, that's funny. Boy. Yeah. And it was the straw that broke the camel's back with all the, all the band gear. And so I got the gig working for Dave Mason. Cool. And I said, but I, but I have a job. And he's going, and, I, and he goes, well, well, we're just doing some gigs. And I went, yeah, okay. What does it pay? How much did you get paid the last thing? I go, oh, I was working for Jefferson Starship. Uh, Jefferson Starship. I was getting paid 1500 bucks a week. And they went, well, that's too high. And I went, uh, no, uh, you know, it could be too high, but uh, that's what I got paid. Yeah. And they went, uh, okay, well, we'll make some phone calls. So they called the airplane office. I gave them the number. And, you know, so I got the gig and I got paid $1,500 a week hmm. in 77. Wow. And so I, I worked for the rest of the year for Dave Mason. Then I worked for the Beach Boys. Then I worked for Journey. Then I worked for John Stewart from the Kingston Trio. And hmm. I worked for Stanley Clark. I worked for, who else? Leaving somebody out. I don't know. There's nobody left. <laughs> no, there are other people. Uh, did you, so at what uh, point did you end up in Seattle? So, okay, so here's funny. So when I was working at Downwards Music City, there's a a, a thing kind of like The Stranger, uh -huh. a newspaper thing in Seattle that in the Bay Area, it was called Bay Area Music, BAM Magazine, newspaper rag thing. It was in all the record shops and bookstores and music stores. And uh, they called me up one day and said, would you review everybody who makes Flying V guitars? Hmm. And I said, okay. So uh, um, there was a store that was a Hamer dealer, and there was a store that had Deans, and there was Gibson, and there was Ibanez, and there was Tondo 2 out of Korea. At the time, Korean guitars were kind of like a bunch of meth heads in a wood shop. <laughs> yeah. It was off, really bad, atrocious. The frets didn't go all the way across the fingerboard. Wow. Um, so I wrote this article about, you know, here's what the thing is. And I had just worked on two 1950s original Flying Vs. Hmm. And I said, let's compare them against the original one. So I took a, got a guy to, uh, named Randy Bachman, a little short guy, like four foot tall, um, who did concert photographers, photography. He took a picture of one of these two flying Vs for me, and they ran all these pictures of the, all the flying Vs in this magazine, and I kind of went through them. And I liked all of them, but especially the Dean and the Hamer one, and compare, comparing it to the old one. Mm -hmm. And I didn't like the new Gibson, and I didn't like the Ibanez. And, and, I, and I go, here's why. It's not that it doesn't look like it. It's that the hardware is inferior or the, the neck angle is, uh, sticks up when the screws got to drag your hand against uh, Allen screws or the bridge is uncomfortable or it, it you know, it, when you don't plug it in, it, it just sounds like a dead sock, <laughs> uh, a cold, wet sock. Yeah. You know, and I went through all these kind of interesting descriptions of the whole thing. And then I, I didn't think anything of it because I saw it as a, as a thing that you wrap fish in at the market and take it home. Yeah. You know, I, I, I was impressed with this magazine thing. Well, I, I, anyway, so two, three years goes by and I go to NAM. Uh, I, I moved back to Southern California and I go to the NAM show 
and they are telling me, well, you, you have to be somebody or be associated with somebody. And as luck would have it, Dean Zielinski, who owned Dean Guitars, walks up to the ticket booth when I'm standing there. Oh, really? And he goes, are you the Mark Arnquist guy that wrote the thing on all the Vs? And I said, yeah, who are you? And he goes, I'm Dean Zielinski. And I went, uh, okay, what does that mean? And he goes, I own Dean Guitars. And I went, oh. And, and I said, oh, okay. He goes, oh, what are you trying to do? I go, I'm trying to get in. He goes, let this guy in. He, he's with me. Nice. And so Dean gets me a badge. We go in. Uh, and I went, well, what you, you know, thanks for getting me in. He goes, what do you do? He goes, tell me about what, tell me about this thing that you wrote. Why did you write that? So I told him the kind of the whole story. He goes, I really like what you wrote about my guitar. Yeah, good. And I said, well, you know, I didn't get paid by you. I, I it was an honest deal. And uh, he said, well, you're in, have fun. Uh, you know, you're in for the whole weekend with that badge. So have fun. Cool. Cool. So I went walking around and uh, I'm walking down an aisle and these three guys are walking down the aisle. And one of them is a guy named Reese Marin. He owns uh, Bellevue American Music. Mm -hmm. And the other guy was Andy Aldridge. He owned American Music Seattle. Mm -hmm. They owned the whole thing together at one point. So they had a business divorce. And the other guy was a guy named Gary Kaler. And he owned a business called American Precision Metalworks. Mm -hmm. And he had been uh, making the brass hardware for the entire industry through the 70s. Yeah, the Kaler. So all the Kaler, uh, he made DiMarzio's hardware. He made Gibson brass, Fender brass. I mean, if it was brass, he made it for everybody. Wow. Literally, except for Olympic. And... Um, he might have made some of the stuff for Olympic, but I, I, I don't know. So anyway, there, there's these three guys are standing there, and I had worked with Risa Don Weirs. Mm -hmm. And uh, he goes, what are you doing? And I said, nothing. And he turns to Gary Kaler and says, hire him. He goes, okay, you're hired. What do you do? <laughs> and Reese goes, he does everything. The guy's like a, a, a marvel. And uh, I go, I, I don't, uh, yeah, right, okay. So uh, now I'm embarrassed. So uh, I said, give me a number. What do I call? Where do I go? What do you do? What do you mean? I'm hired. Uh, how do you know I want a job? <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what the job is. Yeah, right. Yeah. So uh, they hired me as a consultant to American Precision Metalworks, and I did that. And then I worked in this store called California Music, put the flyer up. Oh, yeah. Uh, I saw Facebook that on Facebook. Yeah. And, and, uh, uh, I worked in this place uh, repairing stuff. And again, the Southern California crowd found out that I was in town and I'd worked on all these guys' stuff. And again, the whole, the floodgates opened up. It wasn't just, you know, like, uh, hi, my name's Bob. I got a strat. Right. I need a tweet. What, uh, what year would this have know, been? Uh, this was 70, late 79, 1980, early 81. I did that. Hmm. And um, in 81, we realized that Gary Kaler did not know um, anything about retail. He could make brass parts. He could you know, sell stuff with manufacturers, but retail, he just didn't understand. And uh, so recent Andy decided to pull a coup. And they decided that 
Andy had come from Seattle. Reese was in Seattle. Andy was at the California store. And um, they decided, let's take a monetary, uh, do a monetary trade of inventory. Mm-hmm. And let's take $100,000 worth of Seattle uh, gear and send it to Southern uh, California and swap even money. And we'll send all the crap that's in Seattle, get rid of it and send all the good stuff from California to Seattle. (laughs) And okay. So Andy and I on a Saturday went in and boxed and created all this stuff up. And on Monday, all this stuff shows up in a truck from Seattle. And, you know, shortly thereafter we gave our, our notices and I drove a truck with Andy's and uh, my stuff to Seattle and I, I've been in Seattle since August of 81. <laughs> wow. That's it. That's where we met. And, I, kn- you know, the first time I met you, I, I knew instantly that I liked you because I think the first thing we talked about was how we both dislike the word luthier. Can't stand it. I know. I don't I work on... I think... So here's my biggest beef with the word. There is a guy named Tim Olson who started an organization called the Guild of American Luthiers. Sure. And I have called it since day two of knowing about it, the Guild of American Losers. <laughs> uh-huh. The thing that it was, a, it was uh, Tim wanted to learn how to build a guitar in his garage. Yeah. And, he, and there was no how-to information in 1976 yeah. to do this. Yeah, sure. So he starts a guild hoping to attract people who knew things and he could collect enough information from these guys so that he could actually make a guitar because he couldn't afford to buy a D28, which is what he wanted. Yeah. Were people using and that Were people using that word before? No, I no. Didn't, I didn't think so. It I, starts with, it's, it's Tim Olson. It's his fault. <laughs> because okay. it, it implies so, loots. I don't, I don't work on loots. N- no. It didn't take me long to start calling them the Guild of American Losers. <laughs> That's so funny. But I've, I recognized that there were like four or five other guys that actually had a clue. Yeah, sure. And and uh, Urban Samogi was one of them, and Dick Boak had, uh, and Martin was one of them. Uh, I think Bill Cumpiano was in it at that time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, don't, I don't know, just there was a handful of guys. Yeah, Don Teeter. And Don Teeter was in it. Yeah. yeah. Don Teeter wasn't in it very long. Really? Because a lot of guys are going, a lot of guys were really kind of, you know, crucifying him for some of his ideas. Yeah. And I said, you know, the thing about his fret thing is, is that I did a fret job for Neil Sean and he had a, he had had this, um, fifties Les Paul custom. And it had originally Les Paul uh, Frelis Wonder fret wire in it. Mm-hmm. And he put Dunlop 6100s in it, which is not a good idea to not put new binding on and not go to the extreme of, of fixing the width of this thing because when you put that giant fret wire in a, a guitar that had no fret wire virtually, yeah. that the binding is so rounded over that there's no ledge to put the binding on. And when you file the frets to follow the contour of the binding, you lose fretting your playing surface. Sure. So it had been done so many times in so many different ways, fretting this guitar with different fret wire. Whoever worked on this 
had now widened so many of the slots that, uh, and they had taken a, a knife and slammed it down on the tang to splay the tang out <laughs> to make it stick. Yeah. And I just went, this is awful. The only way to make this work is I've got to epoxy these things in. Mm-hmm. He loves this guitar, but he won't let me change the binding. Hmm. And I just, I just said, look, the only way I'll fret this guitar for you is I have to change binding. He goes, well, it won't be original. Then I go, well, then I'll, pu- I'll go find the fretless wonder frets and put them in for you. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I, I said, here's the difference. And I showed him one that I was already fretting that had, you know, it was a standard or something. And I said, here's what I'm going to do for this. I can do this for you on this. And he goes, it's the only way you can do it. And I said, okay, I can do it one other way. And I have to fill all the side dot holes, take all the dots out, I have to pull the inlays out, then I have to grind the hell out of the fingerboard to take the binding down so that I get the 80,000 some plastic so that I can set the frets on top of it so that I have a ledge so that I can get the width of it so that the, I don't I can barely round the frets then and you get all that width. Mm-hmm. Okay, put new binding on. Yeah, there you go. And, <laughs> and so I put the new binding on, and, and I still had to epoxy the frets in. Yeah. So I did that. And he used that guitar. I did that in my first year of working at Don Weir's, and I had not heard of Don Teeter yet. Oh, yeah. And and it was amazing because it was like mine. I mean, the whole procedure, the whole idea, although I didn't have to use a Dremel tool because the slots were so wide. Sure. Yeah, I read but, about that in uh, his book, in Don Teeter's the, book. He, he uses epoxy to put frets in. Yeah, so I, I did that. And, uh, you know, it worked and he was just in awe of what he got back. So then in comes more guitars, of course. Yeah. And, Same old story. And then Carlos, you know, he talks to Neil occasionally and, and Carlos goes, okay, I've got this, you know, SG custom. What can you do for that? Well, first let's glue the neck back in the body. No, it's okay. So I took the strap button off and the neck fell out. Wow. <laughs> That's not good. And he goes, how did you know that was going to happen? And I, and I said, well, I opened up the psychic guitar repair line years ago. <laughs> and, and he just stood and looked at me with this kind of like slack jaw face. And, and he goes, wow. <laughs> hmm. It's really, it was kind of my funny Carlos moment. Nice. And so then it was put the SG back together and do the binding thing and do the frets. And, get, and, and then it was like, wow. And, he goes, I can use this guitar, and it sustains, and it, 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 it's got, you know, mojo, and it's got all, you know, it's got whatever he was looking for. Wow. And uh, um, anyway, so then a, a few years after that, I moved back to Southern California. Before, before I let you know, I've left, I've left San Francisco, go to Southern California, go to Seattle. I get to Seattle. I hear about this guy, Eric Johnson, from a trade show. I think it was 83 or something. And uh, Eric Johnson's in Guitar Player Magazine talking about how you can hear the difference between uh, Everetti batteries and, and uh, Duracell. Yeah. And, and, yeah, right. And, you know, is that a reality or is that him just you know, messing with the guy interviewing him? That might be. And, uh, yeah, I think so. I think he's just messing with the interviewer. Yeah. Um, sprinkle a little bit of fairy dust on the whole thing. I had a guy once. I had a guy once that was trying to tell me that he could hear the difference between you know the vintage wire that's cloth covered, that he could hear the difference between cloth covered wire and plastic covered wire. 
Right. And I'm going, I don't think you can. Yeah, no, 17 strands of wire that are, you know, uh, 12,000 wide, those, no, it's the same yeah, stuff. it's exactly it the same You're stuff. not going to have any variants. Yep. No. Um, yeah, uh, AWG24 is AWG24. That's right. I don't care if you wrap it in. materials are the same. Right. If you wrap it in spaghetti, it yeah, would sound you know, the same. Rub barbecue sauce on it, whatever you yeah, want to do. Right. It doesn't matter. <laughs> uh, what else? Anyway, so I came to Seattle. I did American Music for 10 years. I opened my thing, did that for... Uh, 10 years, shut it down, went into the graphite composite business for two years with a project that never took off because the owner shut it down. And I uh, did some tooling stuff with Rain Song Guitars. Hmm. Uh, moved back into Seattle from Lake Stevens. And my father's health went south. And so for basically 12 years, I put my uh, business on hold. Oh, really? Um, I, yeah. I, I ran it at a trickle compared to what it should have been. Yeah. And because uh, I was flying down to Las Vegas constantly, and he refused to leave Las Vegas. He told me I had to move to Las Vegas. Hmm. And I said, you're dreaming. I, you know, you're retired. you got nothing going on. You're a, a retired pilot. Come to Seattle. You know, you've been there. It's not bad. And, and he says, I don't like it there. So I, I had to play on his terms. Yeah. And uh, last year of his life, I, I basically lived with him for the whole year. Hmm. And uh, then I sold my Seattle house, and now I live on Snohomish. Mm-hmm. And I'm about to repurpose the barn so that I can dive back into sawdust and fumes. Good. Well, how can and, people... Uh, I, I'll let you go. I've, you go. I've kept you long enough, but I I want to know how people uh, can can get a hold of you or how you can uh, be contacted. Do you have a website or an email address you want to give out? I have no website. The only thing I currently have is Facebook. I have a thing called Frontier Communications, which is the most horrific internet service I have ever heard of in my life. I, <laughs> it reminds me of the 1950s and television reception with rabbit ears and aluminum foil. Wow. It's horrific. So on uh, on Facebook, uh, you're... Uh, com- well, I had Comcast when I was in Seattle. I disliked their service, but it functioned. Yeah. Um, and out here, this doesn't. And Comcast wanted to sue me because my house doesn't have Comcast. Wow. It's a mile away. And I said, well, I'll run a mile worth of cable. What does that take? Let's get everybody in the neighborhood. And they go, we're not coming out to your, your area. Hmm. Not worth it to us. So you want to sue me. So I, I've had it with them. So we're looking, the whole neighborhood is actually looking for uh, an alternative, even to the point of buying a digital uh, antenna setup. Wow. So on, um, on Facebook, how can so, people find you? It's, so it's, I'm, I'm, yeah, I can get on Facebook. I have, you know, anybody who has to talk to me can talk to me there. That is accessible. Um, and I can go sit in Starbucks and use their Wi-Fi. Yeah. And the group is Arnquist Musical Designs, is that correct? Yeah. yeah. Yep. And yeah. that's also on Facebook. So uh, I haven't put anything business-wise really up on that because I'm not really doing business. Yeah. Well, I'm glad to hear that you're, you're going to get back into it. Until I get the barn. Yeah. I'm just not going to put much of anything up. Okay. So, uh, I'm again, I'm running at a slower trickle than I was when I was before I, I dealt with my father's end of life. Yeah. So, well, I'm really glad that you're going to get back into it again, and uh, that's, yeah, that's good, because that's what you should be doing. 
I think so. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I've been driven to this since I was a teenager. So yeah, uh, it's not what I wanted to do when I was, a, you know, like 12. Yeah, sure. You know, my family thought I was going to be a doctor. Yeah. I screwed them all up, and I'm a guitar doctor. So <laughs> uh, just a different appendix. Right on. <laughs> I'll let you go, man. Yeah. I, I really appreciate you uh, giving me an interview for the podcast. And, uh, I, yeah, it's I want to do it again sometime because I feel like we didn't uh, cover a lot of the things I wanted to cover. Maybe we'll have to do part two someday. Oh, sure, sure. Happy to. Okay, great. Happy to. Cool, Mark. Sure, well, th- anytime. Thank you so much, okay, man. Right. Okay. All right. Another episode in the can. And uh, I thank you so much for listening and for participating. Submit your questions and comments to the show by going to ericdaw.com. Click the contact link. Submit your question or comment there. And I need your horror stories. We're going to do that next week. And I don't have enough to do a show. So get in your guitar horror stories. And uh, we'll do a, a special show for Halloween. So thanks for listening. Thank you, Mark. Arnquist for uh, such a great interview and uh, we'll talk to everybody soon. Thank you. Bye-bye.